0: The person who stole needs to quit stealing. Instead, he needs to start working. Why? So instead of taking from others, he'll have something to share with others. That's what it means. We're not looking for symbolic meaning. We don't wonder what these words represent. We don't wonder what their hidden meaning is. We read them. We see them. We know them. That's very simple, isn't it? But not all the Bible is written in that genre. There's another one. Narrative, which actually is a form of prose. It is also straightforward and matter of fact. Typically what it says, it means. What it means, it says. But a narrative is something that's telling us a story. It's relating to us the account of life events and circumstances and people's lives. And we can't read it the same way that we read prose. We find narrative, example, look at the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. The Scripture there says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat." And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but He did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother in verse 8, And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And on the narrative goes, telling us how God dealt with Cain for killing his brother Abel. Now, as we read the story, we don't look for hidden meanings. We don't wonder what Cain represents and what his vegetables represent. We don't worry about what Abel means and what his flock means. Cain means Cain. Abel means Abel. Vegetables mean vegetables. Sheep mean sheep. We know that. We don't have a problem with that. Straightforward. Matter of fact. Means what it says, says what it means. Cain got mad. Killed Abel. But we have to work a little bit harder than just with straight prose. Because if we read Genesis chapter one, verse, uh, Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 in the same way we read Ephesians 4.28, we'll find some information. We'll find out about the sacrifices. We'll find out about what Cain and Abel did, but we won't learn the lessons God has for us. We have to ask, what do these events mean for me? Well, from this passage we learn, number one, I've got to obey God and I've got to do what He says. We learn that we're not supposed to be angry when God is displeased with us when we haven't done His will. We learn that we shouldn't murder. All of those things we learn from this, but we have to learn from it a little bit differently than we learn from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. We have to think about it. How does this translate into my life and how does this apply to how I live, considering how they live? But now we get to a third style, which is a little bit more difficult. One that's a little bit tricky. One that we probably have a little bit of trouble with. And that's poetry, because let's face it, most of us don't like poetry. Uh, Some of us do, but even those of us who do struggle with reading it, because it's different. It's symbolic, it's figurative. Now, Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament did not rely on rhyming endings and metrical cadences the way we're used to. Hebrew poetry, as opposed to relying on rhyming words, typically relied on rhyming thoughts, as some have called it. Look in Psalm 140, and I'll show you what I mean. In Psalm 140, is a great example. Psalm 140, we're going to read verses 4 and 5, and we'll notice the words don't rhyme, but you'll see that the thoughts and the lines rhyme, or go together, or repeat, and say the same thing. In Psalm 140, in verse 4, it says, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men. See how those two statements are making the same statement? I need to be kept from those who do wickedness. We learn that those who do wickedness do violence. Then he goes on, Who have purpose to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Notice how those, those thoughts in each of those lines are parallel to one another. They're essentially repeating and saying the same thing. And what we learn from this is that the wicked are proud, they're violent, they set traps for those who do what is righteous, and we've got to lean on God. But this is poetry. But the problem that we often have with poetry is not the fact that you have parallel sentences, but the fact that a great deal of poetry is written very figuratively and very symbolically. And as we read it, we realize that we're not just reading the information on the page. We've got to think, what does this mean? What does this represent? Look in Psalm 51 for an example. In Psalm 51, we're going to read verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 51 and verse 7, David wrote, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Now, as we read this, we know very well that David is not saying to the Lord, if you just rub a hyssop branch over me, I'll be all right. He's not saying that he wants his skin to glisten wider than snow. What he is actually doing is relying on the events of the Old Testament. The fact that whenever a house had been defiled or a garment had been defiled, the priest was supposed to take a hyssop branch Dip it in the blood of a sacrifice and, and hit it on the wall or rub it or cleanse it in such a way. And so he says, that's what I need. I've been defiled by sin. I need cleansing. We also recognize, knowing that this was occurred, this psalm was written about what happened with David and Bathsheba after Nathan came to him. We know that in that situation, God didn't break any of David's bones, did he? And yet that's what David says. It's not absurd to believe that God could break David's bones, is it? you think God could break David's bones? I believe He could. But that's not what He's saying. What He is actually demonstrating is how guilty He feels. He is pointing out using very painful and explicit terms to describe the guilt that He has because of the sin that He has gone through and done. And He needs forgiveness of that so He can have joy again. So that He can have comforts and not pain. But you see, that's poetry. And if we read poetry the same way we read the narrative, the same way we read the prose, we would have lots of problems. Because we'd never understand. We'd be, look, we'd be trying to find hyssop branches so that we could rub ourselves clean every time we sin. And it just doesn't work that way. Because it's symbolic. It's figurative. And we need to read it that way. Another genre in the Bible is that of the Proverbs. Now, the Proverbs, which of course are mainly in the book of Proverbs, but there's some in other passages, like in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 2. We find a proverb, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 2. The Scripture there, as Ezekiel's writing, says, "...the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on ash." There's a proverb. Most of them, we know, are in Proverbs. Now, these are very poetical. Often they also rely on the couplets or the triplets or the contrasts and meaning of phrases. But the reason why we have to separate this out as a particular kind of genre is because we need to recognize that we don't read the Proverbs the same way we read everything else. Proverbs are not absolute statements, but rather they are general statements. They are maxims that have general and weighty advice but are not absolutes. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 15, and verse 1, We read, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We realize that's the general truth. We understand the truth behind that. If I answer softly instead of harshly, I'm probably going to turn anger away. That person's not going to be so mad at me. But we know that there are people who are so angry, and we know that when we're dealing with people who are such jerks, that even when we give them soft answers, they're still angry. We don't turn around and accuse God of lying because of Proverbs 15 and verse 1, do we? Because we realize this is a maxim. It's a general statement. Here's the way it works generally. But there are certainly going to be exceptions. And we find that throughout the Proverbs. And we've got to read it like that. Otherwise, we're going to think God lies to us all the time. Because we can find exceptions to most of the Proverbs. And so we have to understand the type of writing here. Then we get into parables. Now, we like parables. We know parables. We've studied parables a lot. Parables are a lot like narrative in that they tell a story, but there's a difference. When we read a narrative, as we said earlier, we are recognizing just what's written. It's about whatever is written. The story of Cain and Abel was about Cain and Abel. But when a parable is given, the story is actually about something completely different from what's being talked about. And so we have to ask, what does this represent? What does this mean? We know of the example in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, of course, we find the parable of the sower. We know that parable very well. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at about verse 3, He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this sounds like Jesus has just told a story about a man who's seeding a field. And certainly this is good advice if you're a farmer, go out and put the seed everywhere, but recognize that not all of it's going to spring up and bear good fruit. But was that what Jesus was really talking about? We know that what Jesus was really talking about was growing based upon the Word of God and how we ought to act as people who are teaching the Word of God and understanding what folks are going to do with the Word of God. In fact, Jesus explained the parable in Matthew 13, verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. And then he goes on and explains the rest of it. Sometimes Jesus explained what the parables mean. Sometimes He didn't. We can look in Luke 16 and we read from verse 1 on down to verse 12 about this unjust steward who who was about to lose his stewardship, so He called a lot of the debtors in and cut their debts in half. I'm not sure I know what all that means. Jesus didn't explain the meaning. There's some parables that are explained and some aren't. We just have to study and learn what was the real point behind this. But the thing that we recognize is if we read these parables the same way we read prose, we'd wonder, what on earth does this have to do with the price of tea in China? I mean, here's this story about throwing seed into a field. What do I care? But if we read all the prose and narrative the same way we read parables, we'd be looking for hidden meanings in everything. We'd be confused. We'd be coming up with all manner of crazy doctrines. We've got to take into account the genre, and the style of writing. We've got another one, and that's prophecy. In using the term prophecy here, I'm speaking about using the term specifically described, telling us something that hasn't happened yet. In the most general sense, the word prophecy just means communication from God. In uh, and, and that sense, the whole Bible is prophecy. But in the sense I'm talking about here is the idea of telling something that hasn't Happened yet? Now we recognize that there are certainly some prophecies that are straightforward. They tell us what's going to happen. They tell us it's going to happen later, and it just tells us. For instance, you can look in Joel chapter two, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. In Joel chapter two, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine, it says, "And it shall come to pass afterward." That I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. We find out, and we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, look, the Spirit's been poured out on us. We're having visions, dreaming dreams. We're receiving message from God. That's what it said. It's pretty straightforward. But there are also Some very symbolic prophecies. A lot of the times in prophecies, for instance in Isaiah chapter 2, a lot of times in prophecies we'll find that the prophets would use historical events and iconic images to demonstrate a spiritual meaning. For instance, Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. In Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Isaiah wrote, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on, established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here... Isaiah is using the imagery of the temple and the temple mount in Jerusalem to talk about the establishment of Christ's kingdom, His church, which wouldn't take place for 700 years from this time. And yet it began in Jerusalem, and from there the law of the Lord went out for us. As you see, it's very symbolic, very figurative. Or we might look in John chapter 2 and verse 19 where Jesus prophesied. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Here's the imagery of talking about destroying the temple, but the Scripture tells us just a few verses later in verse 21, He was speaking of the temple of His body. And it wasn't until after He died and was buried and was resurrected that even the apostles understood that. So here is a prophecy, but it's symbolic. It's not straightforward. He wasn't saying that the temple would be destroyed and then raised in three days. He was saying He would die and be raised in three days. One other thing about prophecy I do want to point out is a certain aspect of many of the prophecies, and that's what's called um, prophetic certainty. The idea that even though God was telling something that would happen down in the future, He spoke it because it was so certain as though it had already happened. For instance, in Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the Messiah who didn't come for another 700 years after Isaiah 53 was written. In verse 4 of Isaiah 53, He says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Now that sounds as though it's all already happened, doesn't it? This is what did happen. This is what was, not what is going to be. And yet Jesus didn't fulfill this for 700 years. This was a certain device of prophecy, a part of the style. God wanting us to know that His promises were so certain and true, He spoke about them as if they'd already happened. That's not odd. That's not crazy. That's just the way prophecy was written. And when we read prophecy, we've got to understand that. We can't read it the same way we read it. If we read prose and prose said this had happened or this did happen, we know it would have happened beforehand, right? But when you read prophecy, it doesn't necessarily mean that have to keep that in mind. And finally, one more. Apocalyptic. We separate this out because even among prophecy, apocalyptic literature is read differently than anything else we read. Now, we're not very familiar with apocalyptic literature. We don't read much of it. But the folks that were in the Bible times, they read a lot more of it than we do. Because there are apocalyptic writings that are separate or apart from the Bible, and they read them. Those things went around. And so, when they read Ezekiel and Zechariah, when they read Revelation, when they read Matthew 24, when they read the last half of Daniel, that didn't cause them as much problem as it causes us, because they were a lot more familiar with it. The thing we need to recognize about apocalyptic literature is, <clears throat> is that it was always written in dire circumstances because of persecution or distress or oppression, those who viewed themselves as children of God would write an apocalyptic book. And what the apocalyptic book would say is, it looks bad now, but our God is going to win. And we want to be on His side, because in the end, He wins. That's all it means. A friend of mine once related reading apocalyptic literature like watching a movie, like watching a good old western. We know there's some symbolism in there. We see the guys in the white hats. What does that mean? They're good guys, right? We see the guys in the black hats. What does that mean? They're the bad guys. But we don't spend our time as we watch that old western wondering, huh, I wonder what that tumbleweed that ran in front of his horse means. I wonder what it means that he was riding on a polka-dotted horse. I wonder what it means that he fired ten shots and I know full well that gun only holds six bullets. We don't worry about all that stuff. We just take the picture in as a whole. And we recognize that the meaning behind all Westerns is the good guys win and you want to be a good guy, right? That's what it means. We take all that in as a whole, but we don't try to break it down into its tiniest parts and wonder what does all of this mean? And so, when we open up to the book of Ezekiel, and we read Ezekiel chapter 1, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, We read Ezekiel chapter 1 and we learn about these amazing beasts that have four faces and six wings. And, And then we learn about these wheels that are on all four sides of the chariot, but they're all going the same direction no matter how they spin and which way they're going. We see all these flashes of lightnings and thunder. We don't have to sit down and say, you know, I wonder what the face of the man means. I wonder what the face of the eagle means. I wonder what those six wings represent. I wonder what those wheels mean. We don't have to do that. We take the picture in as a whole and we learn from it exactly what it says in Ezekiel 1.28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. All this is is a description of the glory of God. And if God sits on these things as a throne, how glorious and powerful He must be. And we ought to worship Him too, just like Ezekiel did. That's all it means. We don't have to figure out if there's some type of historical significance to all those beasts. It's not like that. We take it in as a whole and we recognize the point. God is powerful. God is amazing. God wins. And we need to be on His side. And that's it. Because in the end... If we're not on his side, we're on the other side, and we'll be judged along with him. That's all it means. And that's the way we need to read it and recognize it. One other aspect of apocalyptic... That is such a hard word to say, but it's also one of my favorite words, apocalyptic literature, is that the use of numbers is almost always figurative. Almost always symbolic. Now, no doubt there are going to be some that are not, but almost always are. And so, when we read them, we need to read them symbolically. For instance, look in Daniel chapter 9. The last half of Daniel, cha- of Daniel is very apocalyptic in nature. And we find in Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 24, the Scripture says, "...seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy." And then he goes on and describes this. Now, when we understand this, we recognize that some of what was prophesied here did not occur within 70 weeks, but was hundreds of years later because it occurred in the destruction of Jerusalem. It occurred in Jesus coming and being born and living and dying and being resurrected. It occurred in the Scripture being revealed fully. didn't happen within 70 weeks. And we also don't have to come up with some misguided day equals a year theory trying to get it all within 490 years. We don't have to do that because these numbers are used figuratively. It uses a combination of two numbers that means complete. Seven and ten. When our babies are born, what do we look for to make sure that they're complete? Ten fingers? Ten toes? Right? How do we know what a full week is? Seven days? The earth was created in seven days. And so we recognize these numbers are used figuratively. And so when you have 70, which is a combination of those two numbers, we don't start trying to figure out how it exactly occurred within 70 weeks. We don't come up with crazy rules to make it seem literal. We take it symbolically, as it's meant. Gabriel was telling Daniel, in the fullness of time, when God wants it to occur, what you prayed for is going to happen. And that's what Daniel needed to know. And that's how we should take it. We need to recognize that we read all these things differently. Now, I clearly understand that there are some aspects of studying our Bibles that are just absolutely boring. And talking about Bible genres for most people is one of them. But we have to understand it. We have to know it. We have to recognize that when I read Isaiah, I've got to read it differently than I read Matthew. When I read the book of Revelation, I have to read it differently than even parts of Isaiah. I've got to read the Proverbs differently than the Psalms. Now, that's not to say that there's not a pattern. That's not to say that we can't understand. That's just to say that if we're going to rightly divide, we have to understand God wrote in different ways. And we don't come up with misguided rules. We treat the writings the way God meant them to be treated. And that's all we're saying. But if we don't do that, if we don't rightly divide the Word of Truth, then we're going to have all kinds of problems mistaking, misunderstanding, and misapplying. But if we do it, if we take the time to apply correctly the Word of God, Acts 20 and verse 32 says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. When we take the time to rightly divide the word of God, we will be built up and receive that inheritance. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Would you pull out your songbooks, books, please?